in times we may not even realize that somebody's praying for us and how God uses that to sustain us. And uh, it's a wonderful thing. It's a privilege and a responsibility to be able to pray for somebody. Uh, so I'm going to invite you to open your Bible with me to the book of Second Thessalonians chapter 1. We're going to begin a new sermon series this morning through this small letter, three chapters, but good stuff in here. Second Thessalonians chapter 1. We're going to be in verses 1 and 2 today. If you've ever sought to master anything, you've come to understand you've got to start with the basics. I remember as a kid in elementary school, going to my first basketball practice, I'm thinking I'm going to learn how to dribble between my legs and behind my back and learn how to shoot from way downtown. It was before three-pointers were around, so it was way back, you know. Uh, but anyway, the first day of practice, we spent the whole day learning how to do the two-hand chest pass. <laughs> the, whole, the whole practice. And I thought, okay, now we got that down. Let's get on to the good stuff, you know. Next practice, we learned how to do the two-hand bounce pass. You know, and so the coach was showing us the very, very, very basics, the fundamentals. Because if you don't get the basics and the fundamentals down, it's hard to master the more difficult things. In our new sermon series starting today, focused on the finish, Paul in this letter covers some very deep doctrine, especially dealing with the end times. But he begins, first of all, in these two verses here with some starting points. And what you've got to understand is you must master basic Christian beliefs in order to better understand the heavier doctrines. If you want to get to a point in your life where you are understanding the Word and applying it more faithfully, you have got to understand and begin with the basics. And Paul shows us a good starting point this morning. I want to invite you to stand if you're able this morning. We do this out of reverence for the reading of God's Holy Word. From the book of 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, starting at verse 1, and the Apostle Paul writes these words under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Paul and Silvanus and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we humble ourselves now in your presence. We humble ourselves before the power and the authority of your holy word. Father, I pray that we would be given ears to hear and eyes to see. Give us hearts to embrace this truth, to live it out. Father, I pray that you would help each and every one of us as Christians to understand and master these basic truths so that you could enable us to move into deeper waters in our faith and our knowledge of you and the scriptures. And Lord, if there is not, if there is someone here today that does not know you, I pray that as we move into this study, that this would be a wonderful opportunity, God, for them to repent of their sin and to trust in Jesus Christ. Father, we ask for your spirit to move today 
and that we would be obedient to whatever it is you are calling each and every one of us to do. And we pray this all in the name of Jesus our Lord. Amen. Thank you. you may be seated. One of my favorite foods to eat is buffalo wings. Now, I like them hot, but I don't like them too hot where there's no flavor left on them. But I like it hot. I like the different spices you can put on them. But when Auntie and I first started dating and we would eat buffalo wings, I would notice something about her. She would take a bite or two off of one, set it down, and pick up another one. And I noticed that, and I said, uh, Honey, you've still got some meat left on those bones there. And she said, Well, I, you know, I just I can't get to that part, and so I just move on to the next one. And so we've figured out over the years, whenever we're eating buffalo wings, she'll take a couple of bites, and then she'll put what's left on my plate for me to finish it off because there's a, there's a technique there. You've got to figure out how to get all of uh, the meat off of the bones. Now, we look at this passage before us today, and there are two verses, and these verses are short. But, folks, there's a lot of meat on these bones here. But you've got to figure out how to pick it apart. So that's what we're going to do today. We're going to start, first of all, by looking at the author of the letter. The author of the letter. Who wrote Second Thessalonians? This is a bit of a trick question. Because what we believe in our Christian faith is the dual authorship of Scripture. Who wrote the Bible? Well, God wrote the Bible. This is God's Word. But how did the Word come to us? It came through chosen vessels. It came through humans that were so moved by the power of the Holy Spirit that they wrote what God intended for them to write. And so God wrote this letter, but God used the Apostle Paul and his associates to deliver and package this truth that we have before us this morning. A little bit of background to this letter. Back in the book of Acts, chapter 16 and 17, we read the story about Paul and his associates going on the second missionary journey. This journey takes them into Europe, modern-day Greece. And while they are there, they go to the city called Thessalonica. And initially, there's a great evangelistic move there. A lot of people get saved. As Paul and the folks are sharing the good news of Jesus, people are getting saved. But it's a short-lived trip because some of those in opposition to the faith began to drive out Paul and his associates. A lot of persecution erupted, and they left the city. And then shortly after leaving the city, moving on to the, the, the town of Corinth, Paul wrote the first letter to the Thessalonians. A few years back, we did that as a sermon series. And he wrote 1 Thessalonians to kind of reconnect with that church, to let them know that even though I'm not there with you physically, my heart is with you. And he writes to encourage them to excel still more in their Christian knowledge and in their Christian walk. And then shortly after Paul wrote that letter, it's believed that when Paul uh, sent T uh, Timothy and Silas, they, they came back after delivering the first letter and brought Paul a report from the city. And so hearing that report, some year or year and a half or so later, Paul writes this letter to them, inspired by the Spirit to write Second Thessalonians. And we see in this letter, Paul and Silvanus and Timothy, Paul, the primary letter writer, 
What we see about him come out in this letter, in all of his letters, first of all, is Paul's personal compassion. His personal compassion. He's not just a brainy theologian. We have a tendency to look at Paul in that light sometimes because his letters are so deep and because his writing style is so intricate. But Paul is a man who genuinely cared for those people. He loved that church. He loved all of the churches. He had an affection for the people of God. And it shows in his letters. And through that personal compassion, we see Paul's pastoral concern. He wanted more than anything for these, these people, these Christians, to grow in their faith, to mature in their walk with Jesus, to become more like Christ. That was his goal. That was the goal of his ministry, to glorify God by reaching the lost and seeing them discipled and grow and become more like God's Son. And as a leader, as God's called leader, that was his concern for this church and for all the churches, that each and every member of that church would mature in their Christian faith. So Paul's personal compassion and his pastoral concern lead to Paul's practical correction. His practical correction with the God-given authority that he had. He addressed the beliefs and the behaviors of this church and every church. In other words, when Paul noticed that someone or some folks were believing things that were not true, with the authority he had, he sought to correct the error in their thinking. And when Paul noticed that some believers were not living a way that they should, with the authority that he had, Paul sought to correct their behaviors. That was his role. That was his calling. And so as Paul is writing this letter, we, we keep these things in mind. He loves those folks dearly. And he wants to see them, more than anything, wants to see them grow in Christ-likeness. But in order to do that, he has to use the authority God has given him to make necessary corrections along the way. And as he is writing this letter, I got to thinking about that. How, how difficult that must have been in that day and age to communicate with somebody from a distance. You know, it's so easy today, it's almost... Communication is almost cheapened because now you've got your phone and, and you've got a notification and somebody has messaged you and you look at it and it says, sup. And, and, and you just say, okay, not much. You know? and, and it's just so easy now. It's so easy to communicate with somebody. But back then, Paul had to have the, the, the quill with the ink and the parchment to be able to write these things and, the, and the, the distance and the time it took to get from one place to the other. It takes a lot of effort. Letter writing today is, is pretty much a lost art. Almost nobody sits down with pen and paper and writes a physical letter anymore. But when somebody does, when somebody takes the time and the effort to communicate in that way to you, it means something. For those folks in that church to get this letter from the Apostle Paul, it meant a great deal to them. 
it meant Paul loved them. And he was taking the time out of his love for the Lord, his love for this church, to write to see things go the way that the Lord wanted them to go. The author of the letter. Also, we see the audience of the letter in verse 1. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians. I mentioned that city is in modern day Greece. Paul was writing to that church specifically, but via the inspiration of Scripture and the inclusion of this letter into our Bible, what Paul had to say to them not only applied to them in their specific context, what Paul said to them also applies to every Christian everywhere. That's you and that's me. So Paul's intended audience was those believers, but we are also the audience. For everything the apostle has to say with the authority he had through the Holy Spirit to write those words, that authority is still binding over you and over me. So who were those folks he was writing to there? First of all, they were converted to the faith. They were converted to the faith. That meant that they were lost, but now they are Christians. Something had happened. How do we know they are Christians? How do we know they're saved? Because Paul says to the church of the Thessalonians, in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That was their reality. That was their identity. Their spiritual locality was in Christ. They were new. They were born again. That through Paul and his ministry there and the sharing of the gospel, the sharing of the good news, those folks were converted. When Paul came to them and spoke about the reality of God, the creator of all things, the one true and living God, when Paul came and preached about sin and how all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and the wages of sin is death, when Paul came and spoke about the redemption that we have through the cross of Christ, the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. When Paul came and shared the good news that whoever repents of their sin, whoever trusts in Jesus Christ, can and will be saved. When Paul came and presented that truth, people believed. People were converted. People found forgiveness of sin and eternal life in Christ. What about you? Having heard the good news of what God has done for you in Christ Jesus, having heard the truth that you are a sinner and your sin separates you from a holy God, having heard the call to repent and trust in Christ Jesus, have you been saved? Like the folks there that are in Christ Jesus, is that you? Is that your reality? Is that your identity? Have you been born again? to the power of the gospel that God in His grace has brought to you. Have you been transformed? Have you been converted to the faith? That audience was. But also that, they were committed to the fellowship. They were committed to the fellowship. They were a church. What does that mean? The church literally means called out. They, they were called out of the world and called into God's family. And so church in the broadest sense. They were a part of the family of God. As we sang earlier, 
What does that mean? Every Christian everywhere, through all ages, part of the church. But the church is made manifest in the local church. Paul was writing to that church in Thessalonica, a specific local congregation. They were there as a covenant community. They were partnering together as Christians. They were believers banded together in a specific time, in a specific place to worship God and to fulfill the Great Commission. They were gathered as Paul wrote this letter. His intention was that they were to gather together and to hear this letter read from Paul. They were to be devoted to the Word of God, to receive divine instructions, and they were to love and serve one another in Christian love, in Christian unity. That church, that, that congregation, is an example for us of what we need to be. A, a group of believers who are partnering together, who are forming this covenant agreement, this arrangement to serve one another, to love one another, to, to motivate, encourage one another, to receive divine instruction, and to live out our faith with one another and in this world. The beautiful thing about this Thessalonian church, they were a very diverse group of people. As we read in the book of Acts, there were some Jews there descended physically uh, from Abraham, genetically from Abraham, but there were also Gentiles, several Gentiles, non-Jews there. So ethnically, there was diversity there. When we saw the video of the global hymn sing a while ago, I was just struck by the diversity of all the languages, all the nationalities, all, all the people of different uh, backgrounds just worshiping God, singing of the same Christ proclaiming this Jesus. That was going on in that church there in Thessalonica. Jews, Gentiles, men, women, rich, poor. They were devoted to the fellowship, committed to the fellowship. The, the Greek word koinonia, to share something in common. What they shared in common is what you and I share in common with one another and all those Christians in the global hymn sing that were singing all around the world, what we share in common, that fellowship, it's Jesus. We are one in Christ Jesus. We are in God's family because Christ has saved us and brought us in. We have been adopted to the family of God. And we share that in common. It doesn't matter if you and I look different, if we speak differently, different gender, different age, it doesn't matter. If we are in Christ, we share something deep in common, and I would argue the deepest of all things in common, a shared faith in Christ Jesus, manifest in the local church. They partnered together, they came together and said, we are going to live as Christians, as disciples in this world. We need one another. And as Paul wrote this letter, his intention was to write to a group of Christians partnered together. He wasn't writing so that individuals out there just doing their own thing with Jesus could be instructed. No, he wrote so that the church, the context, the, the desired context for a Christian is to be plugged into a local church. That's God's plan. That's God's design, God's desire for us. They were converted to the faith. They were committed to the fellowship. Yet they were confused about the future. 
confused about the future. As Paul wrote 1 Thessalonians, five chapters, in each of those five chapters, Paul talks about the end times. So obviously there was something in that context there in that church setting. They just weren't quite grasping. So Paul wrote 1 Thessalonians and sent it to them. News comes back. Paul, they're still not quite getting it. And if you're like me, you're a little dull sometimes. You don't quite grasp it the first time. So Paul is writing 2 Thessalonians to do a lot of things, but one of the things he's dealing with is their confusion about the future. Specifically, there were some people that came into that church after Paul left and said, yeah, the second coming of Jesus already happened. Y'all missed it. <laughs> you can imagine how depressed, how bummed out you'd be to hear that. God's magnificent plan in Christ Jesus to return to this earth and to, and to rescue His saints and to set up His kingdom, and suddenly you realize, I missed out. I overslept. I, what, I don't know. I, I missed this. And they were freaked out, and Paul's writing 2 Thessalonians to do several things, but also to show them it's not happened yet. The end hasn't come yet. And what we see in their confusion mirrors, in a lot of ways, the situation today. There is a lot of diversity when it comes to end times beliefs. There is a great deal of, of, of confusion. There, is, uh, there are so many different ideas and concepts. And if we're not careful, we can get so tripped up with that and think, well, my way of thinking is the only way when it comes to the end times, and everybody else is completely off. What we need to remember is, as one of my favorite preachers, Alistair Begg, always says, we need to keep the plain things the main things because the main things are the plain things. Don't get confused by things that aren't plain. Focus on the things that are. And when it comes to studying the end times, Jesus is coming back. That's the main thing, and that's the plain thing. And how do we need to live in light of the fact Jesus is coming back? That's the main thing. Now, much can and has been said about the state of the modern church. We think about the bad, but there's also good. We see that played out in this church in this letter. There are some things they were doing right, and Paul was thankful for that. Paul celebrated that. Paul encouraged them and blessed them and motivated them in that. There are some things they were getting wrong in the, way in the way they thought, in the way they acted, in the way they lived. And Paul sought to correct that. So as we think about the modern church, everything that's bad, everything that's good, it's nothing new. It's the church. Why? Because the church is made of people. People, people aren't perfect. And so we struggle. And, and, and we, we learn and we grow and we depend upon one another. That church needed one another. They needed Paul. They needed instruction. They needed to gather and partner together. The same is true for us. We see the author of the letter and the audience of the letter. Finally, we see the agenda of the letter. You know, what's the point? What was Paul getting at? Why was he led to write this specific book of the Bible? 
I think we have in each chapter three specific things. First of all, he wrote to encourage the church. We'll look at that more in depth next week. He wrote to encourage them. They were suffering persecution. I mentioned earlier that Paul and his associates were driven out of the city because there were so many people there that did not want Christianity to spread in their city. So there were Christians there dealing with all kind of persecution. And they were discouraged by that. Does that mean that God has given up on us? Because if I follow Jesus, doesn't that mean that everything in life needs to unfold like a scene from a Disney movie or something? Where everything suddenly turns bright colors and the, and the animals are singing and, 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 and the flowers are miraculously blooming. and We just think as, when I get saved, that's what's going to happen. But the reality is that's not the case. We live in a fallen, broken world and we deal with suffering and sometimes persecution from those who aren't believers. And Paul was writing to tell them, you know, it's not that something's wrong with you. You are suffering persecution because something is right. You need to not give up. You need to hang on. So he wrote to encourage the church. He wrote to educate the church. As I said earlier, a lot of confusion about end times beliefs. And Paul sought to provide God's truth rather than speculation. Everybody's got opinions. Everybody's got ideas. Everybody's got thoughts on every subject out there. But Paul sought via the power and the, the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to give them truth, something solid. He wrote to give them something dependable, something trustworthy, a sure and certain word from God on this matter. He wrote to educate that church. And we would do well to also allow ourselves to be educated in what God has to say. Finally, he wrote to exhort that church, to, to motivate them. See, proper beliefs must lead to proper behavior. But there were some folks in that church that weren't quite behaving the way they needed to. So in the third and final chapter, Paul said, now that I've kind of set some things straight with the doctrine, here's your duty. You need to do this. You just stop doing this and do this instead. And as Paul writes and exhorts them on how they ought to live and how they ought to behave, we also as the church need to follow that same instruction. As Paul writes to that church, he's also writing to us. God is speaking to us. And we need to watch our lives and watch our behavior and live like people who believe that Christ has died and rose again and is coming back. Once more, we need to live in that light. But in order for Paul to do all of this, to encourage, educate, exhort, he needs to remind them of something. We see that in his greeting in verse 2. Grace to you and peace. It's a typical Jewish greeting, also a typical Roman greeting. But Paul takes it and does something with it and makes it Christianized. Paul says, grace to you and peace. Grace is, is gift. It's undeserved favor. Something coming to you that you don't deserve, you have, that you haven't earned. Peace, we think of peace as the absence of conflict, but in the Jewish context, peace meant shalom. It meant not lacking anything, everything in its fullness. We looked at that last Sunday, didn't we? Jesus told his disciples, peace be to you. 
It means that, uh, that nothing is gone. Everything is as it should be. You're whole. You're complete. And Paul says, grace to you and peace, but what, what is the source of grace and peace? Paul says it's a dual source. It is from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. God, the one who created us, is now our Father because of our faith in Him, because we've been adopted into His family. God is now our Father. And Jesus, the one born of the Virgin, the one who lived a sinless life, the one who went to the cross and died for our sins, the one who rose again in bodily form on the third day, that Jesus, that Christ, that Messiah, that promised one, He is Lord. He is King. He is Master. He is Lord of all. Grace to you and peace from the Father and the Lord Jesus. And, and the construction there grammatically means grace and peace comes from both of them. It comes from the Father and it comes from Christ. Why is that? Because apart from the grace of God in Christ Jesus, there is no peace. You will not have peace. You will not have wholeness. You will not have oneness. You will not have completion in the eyes of a holy God apart from the grace of God in Christ Jesus. And in Paul's greetings, grace always comes before peace. Because that is the truth for you and I. We must receive of His grace to finally receive of His peace. God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ equal in essence also equal in their purpose for you and for me. So as Paul begins this letter, he reminds them of that truth, of, of the grace of God, that we don't deserve forgiveness of sin through the death of Christ on the cross and the peace we have with God because of what Christ has done for us. He reminds them of those essentials. So you and I, we must master these basic Christian beliefs in order to better understand these heavier doctrines. I seen on Facebook the other day, Malcolm posted a picture of a semi-truck. And on the side of the trailer of the semi-truck were these words, On the road to success, there are no shortcuts. And the amazing thing about this photo of this semi with that on its trailer, right before it came to a four-way stop, the semi had turned through a fence. On the road to success, there are no shortcuts. And Malcolm commented on it, then why did the driver try one? <laughs> he tried a shortcut. If you and I are going to get to a place where we are mature in our faith, there's no shortcuts. It takes spiritual discipline. We talked about that in our Sunday school class this morning. We've got to stay devoted to the Word of God, devoted to the fellowship and the service of the local church devoted to, to prayer, praying for one another, praying for God's blessings on our lives, communicating with the Father. We have to do these basic essentials. So many people say, I want to know what the Bible has to say about end times. Uh, I want to learn and study the book of Revelation. Everybody's always fired up about Revelation. But you're never going to grasp the book of Revelation and the study of the end times unless you come to master the essentials, the plain things the main things of God. Make that a priority and focus on those. 
People say, I want to grow in my knowledge of the Bible, but yet they seldom even read the Bible. Or they seldom come to a Sunday school class or a, a, a Sunday morning worship or a Sunday night study. They want to know the Bible, but they don't want to sit underneath its teaching because it takes efforts, it takes devotion, it takes commitment. You're never going to grow as a Christian apart from the discipline of studying the Word of God. You're never going to come to know the deep truths of the Word of God until you learn to master the milk. As Peter says. So what you and I need to do as we enter into this sermon series, as we think about growing in our relationship with the Lord, we need to do two things. You need to start strong and stay steadfast. You need to start strong. Start with the basics, the essentials. Understanding grace understanding the, the person and the work of Jesus Christ and understanding repentance and faith. And then we stay steadfast because the enemy is going to want to detour you. He's going to run you off the road. He wants to wreck and destroy and discourage you. You've got to stay steadfast. You've got to stay plugged in to the Word of God. You've got to stay plugged in to the local church and receive the power and the blessing that God has in store for you. In His grace, He has made these things available to us. The right starting point and the perseverance to finish come when you and I focus on the finish, thinking about what Christ has in store for us, and then by His grace and for His glory, staying committed to walking that path and growing in His likeness. Let's pray together.